Uh, hello. Um, thank you for our listeners. Thank you for our viewers now on YouTube. Uh, I'm flying solo again today. Um, Mr. John Spiegel can't make it, but we have another guest on our show. Uh, it's great. I love having guests. I like talking to people. Um, so today we have Dreton Salejovsky, uh, and I hope I pronounced that right. Um, I'm, I'm very happy for you to be on the show, be a guest. Um, I followed you a lot on LinkedIn. I've seen a lot of your posts. I know we've been kind of liaising for a while, but it's nice really to, to finally kind of meet you. I'll say face to face, but like virtually. Um, I want to talk a little bit about LinkedIn, but first let's kick off with the same question I ask everyone. Let's talk about kind of your journey, kind of how did you get into into the, the role you're in? Where did you start? What did you do? That kind of thing. Let's Let's start with that. Yeah, fantastic. No, first, I want to say thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, it's an honor and privilege. I've listened to your podcast and heard some pretty phenomenal people on there. You know, Lisa uh, Lorenzen and and even Kevin, um, who who I interact with quite frequently on LinkedIn. So, uh, so yeah, thanks. Thank you first. And as far as my background, uh, how uh, you know how I got started and and where I am today. I think I'd like to really start back far, far, you know, my younger years, as uh, as I like to say, and that's really in high school um, and, and why that's going to lead to why I'm actually in Sweden today. So um, long story short right there is, is uh, you know, I was uh, into, I started getting into tech and it was in mobile phones um, and I had an uncle in Sweden and I traveled there one year, I was 14, 15 years old. Um, and they had these tiny little Nokia and Ericsson phones. And I came back to the U.S. and we had bag phones and, you know, and backpacks with, a, you know, with an antenna sticking out of it. And I just always thought, why, how the heck can they do that? And, and we can't. And um, that led to a company I started, um, which uh, led to uh, a multi-million dollar uh, acquisition. Um, and then I said, this is pretty fun. Let me try something else. Um, I started a content media site online where... Uh, some investors out of LA. Uh, it's still in existence today. It's called Collider.com. Um, you know, that's why I started exploring with you know business uh, BlackBerry Enterprise Server, good technology, and you know, of course, what is Exchange and HTML, CSS, all that good stuff and technology. I really got into that. It wasn't hardware based. It was, um, and so that's why I started getting into IT. Um, that was uh, acquired by Verizon. Uh, it was really exciting, and then I was still young, and I had my coming to Jesus moment of. You know, I'm. Uh, this is awesome. I'm, I'm successful in two companies, and what am I next? And uh, and then the 2008 economy hit, and I said, okay, now I need a coming. You know, another realization. Uh, and so, uh, so got in the restaurant business, um, and, and that was quite fun. Um, and then started talking about PCI uh, and payments. And my family had a couple hundred restaurants, and and uh, PCI became an important topic. And and you know, guest access, Wi-Fi, and all that. Secured me to you know a group of restaurants, um, sold the restaurant business, and then I went into uh, consulting. Uh, started getting into kind of the networking aspect of things. Did a lot of work for AT and T, Verizon, the telcos, uh, kind of combining what I learned from Collider and the tech and the telco industry. Um, and then I quickly uh, fast forwarded into cybersecurity. Went to American Airlines, worked with them closely on their U.S. Airways acquisition and endpoint security. Uh, really started touching into zero trust in respect to you know network segmentation and a little bit of identity and encryption, et cetera. Um, and uh, jumped to EY. EY offered me a position in Sweden. Uh, my wife's from here and uh, didn't even have to ask her. And she said, "Let's do it." So we're we're here now for two years. Uh, I've uh, recently. Uh, left EY and 
and you know doing uh, merger and acquisition uh, type of work for uh, private equity and uh, how they uh, acquire and exit different companies. So I know that was a little long-winded, but I think it's all kind of important as everything complements your journey as, as where you are today. No, I think that's quite an interesting journey. And obviously, one of my passions is food. So the fact you um you like ran a restaurant is is going to be intriguing, and I'm sure we'll get to to that in the fun questions. Um, okay, so let's start with the kind of the role of the CISO. I mean, I, I see stuff. I've seen you post stuff. I see stuff posted online a lot about that role. And and for me, the CISO role is relatively new. I mean, I've spoken to people like Paul Simmons, and he was, I guess, a very kind of early CISO and was a CISO for a period of time. Um, but for me, there's confusion about what the role is. There's confusion in the industry. There's confusion from businesses. And I think even there's confusion for people that do the role. And, and then when you throw in the whole kind of virtual CISO type role, um, we also see and read in the press that the CISO really only lasts like on an average two years. And, and for me, two years in a business in a senior role is, is barely enough to kind of look around and see what's going on. I mean, if you're in a, a large multinational company and you're in theory responsible for all the security, how can you possibly expect to make any change in, in that period of time? Um, but let's start with a question. that What do you see the, is the role of the CISO? And then after that, why do you think they only stay for two years? Oh, this is a, a big, long-winded answer, but I'll make it as short as possible. Um, the the role of the CISO um, is to work across all functions in an organization and to ensure that the 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 stakeholders remain secure and, and the revenue is uh, you know there's there's revenue to the company. Um, and I think that's where the confusion and the challenge comes, right? Uh, it's it's not a pillar within an organization like the CFO, uh, the CIO, even which oftentimes is a report to function within the CISO. Um, it's kind of that stripe that runs across. Um, and you know, when you say the you know again back to the confusion, it's it's you know when I especially in my big four days when we when we look at from an auditing perspective, financial auditing in particular. Um, having your lines of defense are extremely important, right? So who's responsible for what in an organization, um, you know, from the asset to the actual control and then the management of those controls uh, and where that CISO plays. Um, and, and when we look at reporting structures uh, for, for CISOs, uh, when they report into uh, the CIO, for example, uh, who ultimately is the information that the assets in the environment and uh and then you have someone who's actually attempting to secure it and wants to, you know, restart those on uh, Black Friday because there's a, uh, a zero day attack. Uh, what's the CIO going to say to the CISO? Uh, you probably guessed it in your mind. Um, and so there's a lot of conflicts and confusion on on, on what the CISO role is, and and that's and that's completely understandable. Um, and you know, I think the the role again is is to secure the environment, whether that's for the CIO, the CFO, and ultimately to the board. Um, that's that's the ultimate role. So why why do you think that the the term of of the CISO is so short? I mean, or or why do you think they move around so often? And and in my mind, I think it's maybe because either because of the pressure of the role, or because of lack of support. But what what do you see? Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's definitely. I feel it's a it's a it's a combination of what you just said, right? So it, it's the it's the stress factor, 
Um, I, I know and I've seen several CISOs uh, get into uh, a position and then they exit and then they go into, you know, VC or, or something and uh, maybe a little less stressful uh, on their on their sleepless nights and more on their cash flow. Um, but uh, I think the other aspect of things is the uh, inability for, uh, you know, the board and executives to really understand what the overall mission is and, and what they're trying to deliver, right? So. Um, there's the complexities of explaining in business terms uh, why the CISO needs to do what they need to do and spend the budget they need to spend. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, they, because of the, I guess, miscommunication, if you will, um, or the lack of communication to the board, uh, you know, it's almost easier for them to just go through and try and find a CISO that they can, uh, they, they can get to align with them and their vision. Uh, is more so than anything. That's my thought. Yeah, I mean, I, I've certainly seen over the last couple of years there being a growth in the CISO role. Um, but I've also seen it being really just the title that a company feels they need without really any backing. Um, and I think that's starting to change now. And I, ho I hope it does continue to change because cyber attacks are on the rise. They're not dropping off. I think they'll continue to rise. And I think cyber is a, a very very much a it's grown out of it uh it, it was information technology information security and then it became cyber and and a lot of the time your it team was kind of responsible for security but it's it's quite a difficult balance between making your company efficient through the means of it and then securing it the the the, the security team has quite often been seen as kind of like the office of no and I think CISOs really need to be able to balance what the company needs, but what legislation exists and what risks exist out there as well. Um, and one of the, the topics that's really close to, to my heart is mergers and acquisitions. So I've been involved in mergers and acquisitions for, for 25 plus years. It was only really in the last couple of years that anyone considered the security of the company that we were acquiring. And for me, that was a little bit scary because you are basically acquiring a company. You have to create an integration plan. That integration plan, in my experience, was became shorter and shorter and shorter, and you had to deliver more and more and more in a shorter period of time. And that basically meant slamming two networks together and two entities together and giving everyone access across both entities with no consideration to the level of security in the business that you were acquiring. And I worked for manufacturing companies. I worked for companies that did kind of highly secure stuff, did stuff for the military, and we had to pass certain kind of regulations and get certifications to be able to sell to certain customers. And then I'd be sitting down having a conversation about, okay, you want to connect those five sites that we know nothing about other than a little bit of due diligence into a network that we've spent 10 years securing. Like, can we not dig a little bit deeper? And it was, again, it was always that balance between making the company as efficient as you want. And obviously the whole point or, or a large proportion of the point of doing M&A is all about synergies and is all about making that company as efficient as possible, as quickly as possible and be able to get value as quick as possible. And that was difficult to have those conversations. So what, what do you think 
How do you think boards should consider kind of cyber when they they consider mergers and acquisitions? What what is what should be on their mind when they're going through kind of these large deals? And that's a difficult question, I know. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, it's 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 while it's difficult, I think you know, with between the experience you and I have over the years, I mean, it's, it's the fundamentals of security, right? Is is you know, I think the popularity is is obviously risen from the the whole Marriott uh, you know incident that was pretty significant. I think that really you know investors, private equities, et cetera, and, and corporates have really just said, okay, what are we getting ourselves into? And and so a lot of you know what I would tell the you know anybody, including the board, is is you know, understand, you know, from the point of the, you know, the transaction, was anybody in the environment that you may be aware of? Uh, was there an incident that you are or were not aware of, right? Um, before, uh, before uh, you sign a, a deal. Um, and then after signing, what is the potential risk that something will, will occur? Um, and then what type of, uh, leeway do we have from from the point of signing to the to the point of uh the uplift um and, and then what is the investment cost of that and what we what we see is is that uh more and more so from a negotiation perspective uh we're seeing that negotiations are heavily leveraged based off of uh cybersecurity. um you know done transactions uh where we go into environment, we do a deep and dark web analysis and, and then find, you know, some of the IP is already out there, whether it's code um, or material designs. Um, and so you have a company that's trying to buy a technology, uh, you know, technology acquisition and and some of that data is already out there. So what are you buying? You're buying something that's pretty much on the public domain in essence. Um, so be, be aware of what you're actually buying um and uh is it freely actually freely available uh and can it be freely available do you have insiders uh within your organization that are going to hear about a transaction have negative sentiment um and then go out and upload uh information and say i have you know i have the code for this that's what they bought and and here it is to to the deep and dark web so what is that risk um at the end of the day it's it's financial material to the transaction so i think that's really uh i would emphasize understanding and knowing that before going to a transaction yeah, I think that's some key insights. Um, so so let's pivot a li little bit. I, I saw a post recently on LinkedIn where you posted about short short job tenure and was it a positive thing? And it, it got me thinking, actually. It was, and we'll debate it a little bit. So so I th I've stayed at my companies that I've worked at for long periods of time. I did a few long stints. I did a couple of 10-year stints and i did a short stint in formula one it was a contract role kind of in between long stints um but i've been advised over the years the only way you'll get a proper raise is to move regularly like one year one and a half years two years but i never wanted to do that i wanted to be able to make a difference i wanted to to come into a company get my feet under the table, evaluate what was going on, and then make it make a real difference, be able to improve something. And maybe I was a bit naive. Maybe I, I felt I could make a difference. And in some cases, you can. And, and, and I never felt that jumping around was the right thing to do. However, I equally look around at people that I know that have jumped around on a regular, like regular time frame and, and earn significant money. In my mind, it's it's not good for companies if people only stay there 18 months or two years. 
I, I think companies should should potentially do more to retain their their resources. However, there's not always growth availability. There's not always that next step. And if you're a very passionate about what you do and you're, you're very driven and you want to take the next step, sometimes the only choice is to jump ship and go somewhere else. So what was the reason behind your post? And, and, and what do you think about that kind of the job tenure? Should it be long? Should it be short? What, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I probably should have caveated that post just a little bit further in respect to what it means, because um, my 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 view on it is is more from a professional service consultant perspective, right? So I, I have I've only worked at American Airlines outside of consulting over the last fifteen years. Um, of, of course, my own businesses, um, and while I tend to, I am very very strongly agree with your statement as far as making a difference. Um, and in a corporate environment like American Airlines, it, it does require you to be there a little bit longer. Um, and I say that while I was only there for almost exactly 12 months of the day, um, where I where I think, you know, I have spent an average of, I think, two and a half years at each place that I've worked at. Um, and it's all been professional services. And I tried to look back actually very recently to see how many projects I've done. And if, when I counted um, in memory, it was over 40 projects, uh, different companies. Um, and I had served uh, 20, I think it was 25 Fortune 100 companies in the U.S., um, so a quarter, a quarter of them. Um, and most of the projects that we did uh, are last, you know, for as short as three weeks to an average of three months. Um, so you do, you know, quote, I say make a difference, right? So, so some of the yeah. stuff just goes and collects dust uh, on, on the shelf. But the ones that you do make a difference, right, like like designing an encryption, uh, you know, an encryption uh, architecture for, you know, uh, you know NACHA uh, banking, um, and then they go and implement it. That's pretty fun and exciting. So I definitely get that out of it. Um, but as far as uh, what drove that post, um, you know, I I coach a lot of people and mentor a lot of people and I get messages all the time that say, Hey, you know, I'm not happy or, you know, I, I want to move companies because I'm not getting paid. Well, you know, my salary is this, what do you think? Or what do you think just in general? Um, and so my, my response is, is oftentimes as long as you have a story for why you moved um, and it's not only driven financially, yeah. uh, then there's, there's, there's a legitimate reason for it. Right. I mean, you know, some people may have personal reasons they've moved. Um, you know, they went through a time in their life where they, you know, they got they got laid off. Um, you know, there there are stories. Now, I will, I do emphasize, and I don't remember if I put in this in my post, but um, if you can continuously have one to two years of job history throughout, you know, a ten years time span, that probably is a red flag, right? Especially in a corporate environment, um, that means that you just can't stay and sit comfortably. Um, but having that, you know, a couple times over a tenure or three times over a tenure job span, I, I definitely don't think that's a negative thing, especially again, if you have a story uh, behind it. Um, I personally am a type of person that needs continuous, uh, continuous engagement and challenges. I yep. think most of us do in InfoSec. Um, that's why we're here today. Um, and if we don't, and we get into a corporate position, uh, you know, outside of like fintech, where you're just sitting and doing the same damn thing over and over every day. Like who wants to do that for more than a year or two? Um, you know, at American Airlines, I literally was just configuring host space firewalls with the team um, and, and running the team and looking at designs and redoing, you know, IP addresses and looking at subnets and going to business and validating that. It was like over and over the same thing, you know, 10 hours a day for 12 months straight. Yeah. You know, beyond 
killing yourself, like, you know, literally from work, uh, it just doesn't make sense to do that for, for a very long time. I, I think you've raised a good point. I think if you are in consulting and you're delivering projects over and over and over, you've got a very steep learning curve. It's very exciting. I, I think that's good. And I think the corporate world need to understand the benefits of keeping people motivated. And it it may not just be financial. In a, in a lot of cases, it's not. If you start on a help desk, you don't want to be on the help desk more than likely in the next 10 years. So how are you going to help people progress? And don't get me wrong. If you've got 20 people on a help desk or 50 people on a help desk, there's more than likely only going to be one or two managers of the help desk. So there's only a certain amount of jobs that you can all progress into. And then as you go up the, the kind of you go up the corporate ladder, there are less and less opportunities. So not every company can give an opportunity to, to everybody that they've got under them. And I've interviewed people in the past that have, have jumped around and I've interviewed people that have stayed in the same role. Sometimes the jumping around is, is open people's eyes and they've got a lot more experience because they've seen things happen in, in many different ways. And if you've come, like you said, you've come yourself and all you've done is create mailboxes and exchange over and over and over and over, and you've done it for five years, that also says some things about you as well that, that could be positive, could be negative. So I, I, however, do think if you are in a more senior role and certainly within a security role within a corporate and you're expected to come in and make a change, leaving after two years is probably you're not even been able to get into kind of a budget cycle you've not even been able to really implement too much because you need to look around and see what's going on like you said yourself in your experience yes you've been able to do that because you've been on specific projects and you've got them under your belt and you've learned from them I can guarantee if you've gone into a, a massive multinational company that that have no security right now in two years, you've probably made very little change. So I think there are good and bad. I think the key thing is, is keeping people motivated and trying to understand what motivates each individual. And certainly my experience is that's different. It's not always money. It can be training. It can be coaching. It can be growth. I've equally known people that are more than happy to sit on a help desk and do that for the rest of their lives. And that doesn't mean to say that's a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, Jay, you raise a really, a really valid point. And I don't want to derail the whole the conversation, but I think when you say, um, you know, incentivizing, challenging, motivating individuals in an organization, I think I'm confident where organizations tend to not only fail in retaining people, that actually fail from a security perspective. And here's what I mean by that. When you sit someone down uh, and you have them doing, you know, uh, you know, creating accounts in Active Directory for, for two, one, two, three, four, five years straight, and that's all they're doing, um, or someone that's just doing security groups and updating, you know, OUs, uh, you know, and, or just doing firewalls. Um, and they have no visibility, no understanding, and no real true meaning for what their job actually means for the broader security of the company. You're hurting yourself as an organization. Yep. Um, I can tell you why myself and others who I've worked with in the past become one successful and valuable to organization is is because 
they know if you make a change to a security group or an OU, the impacts not only from an IT and security perspective and being up at night um, fixing something, but also to the business um, yeah. and and potentially what that means all the way up to financially to to the consumer, right? That's that may be impacted from a you know call center perspective. Um, and it's it's up to the duty of the corporation to get people sometimes a little uncomfortable um, if they're doing the same mundane task or if they want to do it to help them to challenge them and cross train, right? Um, and and I think that's where that's where a lot of organizations say, okay, we're hiring you as this role. You're going to sit there, and that's what we're going to have you do. And of course, you know they're going to get paid for that position. But then they're going to go and you know go and create virtual environments on TCM, and then go explore and say, oh, I'm just, my role is not just about Active Directory. It's also about firewalls, routers, switches, you know, and and uh, endpoint security, EDR, IR, BCP. And then they start exploring, and they go get a job and get a twenty percent job increase when that corporation could have done that themselves and gotten yeah. someone that is so well-rounded um so I, I think there's a lot of ways to to retain talent to challenge them to keep them and and then at the same time increase your security posture so i've got a question that kind of comes from that and it's really about advice to your younger self so if you were starting out in your career and it doesn't have to be your younger self, I guess. I should rephrase that question. If you were starting out in your career now, no matter what age you are, and you're trying to break into cyber, what would your advice be? How would you, if you were starting and you were on a help desk and you wanted to not be there forever, what would your advice be? How do you handle that situation if you're doing those mundane kind of tasks? Because... Let's leave it there and we'll, we'll debate it a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be quite honest, I don't, you know, I don't, I tend to obviously look back at the past and, and what I did uh, and, and how I can improve myself. And and I truly think that what I did in the past, and that's why I think I make a really good mentor and coach is I did the right thing. And I don't think I do anything different from the, and on this specific topic that you speak of. Um, and uh, I, I would tell everybody that whatever you're doing today, understand the purpose of what you're doing. If you're going in and changing passwords, if you're going and creating OUs and security groups and you know configuring a firewall or rebooting a you know a router, um, why are you doing it? What are the implications? And then go and replicate that in your own environment. Like, you know, 15 years ago, I didn't have the luxury of going and spinning up an Azure environment uh, with a student account to have you know free, free uh, you know free hosting. Um, so I, you know, bought a NAS that could create VMs and, and, you know, I started creating a small environment, AD, I had a, you know, a little laptop, uh, Windows 7 or machine, and, and I started creating my own environment. And then, you know, funny enough, like, you know, Trend Micro Deep Security Manager offered like a free trial. Um, and so I put Deep Security Manager as a cloud instance on my, on my server, my environment, and I used that as a, as a free tool. And then I just started exploring and breaking things. And there was nights where I sat up for, you know, all night long for seven, eight hours straight trying to fix one problem to only realize that there was just a small configuration file that I had to tweak. And then I, you know, I can tell you damn well that I can reverse that in my head because I spent so much time on a small thing and I knew why, how, what. And, and, and so I would tell people, go out and really understand the purpose of what the position is that you're trying to fill. And then create that at home because you can do it, especially now. Um, and that's what I tell people to to do. And I don't think I changed that. That's really how, that's what put me in the position I'm at today. 
I, I think that's really good advice because I've spent a lot of my career going on training courses and talking to peers, talking to people and the amount of times that you would be on a training course and maybe 10 or 12 people, you all have to introduce yourself on day one and talk a little bit about what your company did. 85, 90% of the people in the room would say, I don't know what the company does. I just work in it. That hurts. And, 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 <laughs> and I'm like, but therefore you don't know why you're doing what you're doing. And you, you, I mean, don't get me wrong. You're not the CEO. You're not the head of operations. You don't need to know it at the same level of detail that those kind of key people do. But you should have an idea. You can't just turn around and say, oh, we're a manufacturer. Like you should know what you're manufacturing, why you're manufacturing it, where does it go, what is your supply chain, all of those kind of things that, that when you are doing your job, if you make a mistake, who is it going to affect and how is it going to affect them? If there's downtime within the business, how critical is that going to be? And I think it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Your business should also be sitting people down and explaining as well. I mean, you should, as a person, seek that knowledge, but there's a responsibility from the business to give you that knowledge as well. Um, but let, let's pivot a little bit again. I'm looking at the clock. Time's ticking. Um, I want to talk about zero trust. Um, and I see a lot of stuff coming out of the US. I see it being talked about a lot. Obviously, on the podcast, we did our Breaking Down Zero Trust podcast. I, I've been speaking to the likes of John Kindervag, Chase, Jim Rivas, um, Paul Simmons. We kind of went on a journey to look into what Zero Trust was and is. And I see there being benefits in it. Um, and I guess it's good talking to you because I guess you've still got a lot of American friends where Zero Trust is probably more of a bigger deal. But I'm certainly not seeing so much of it in the UK or even in Europe. And, and I wonder what you're seeing in, in Sweden versus what's happening in the US. Um, but my first question is, buzzword or a real, real thing? Um, just quickly, I mean, I, I didn't know what, zero, what the hell Zero Trust was until 2017 when I joined UI. Um, and the reason why is because when you join big four, a lot of the larger consulting firms is they always want to create something new and great and just, you know, they're trying to sell something. Right. And that's when I first heard of it. I'm like, I've been doing zero trust for the last five years. Um, that's what zero trust is or part of zero trust, right? It's important yeah. to emphasize. So is it a buzzword? Um, it's, it's a buzzword that's here to stay. Uh, yeah, just like cloud was, um, it's definitely, it's a buzzword, but buzzwords become things that stick and then, you know, then they're just, they're there to stay. So it's definitely, it's been a buzzword in the US. I think it's something that people are just getting used to. So what, where, where do you see it going? I mean, for me, it's not a product. You, you don't just go and buy a zero trust tool. Yes, there are products that can help you on the journey. But for me, I very much think that zero trust is a strategy. It's even probably even more than that. Um, and I've talked about this before on the podcast that we've done things wrong for so long. Our systems that we have in place, security always came after. And I've spoken on a podcast recently with, with somebody else about this. And, and they were quite clear that everything we've ever done in IT, security came after. FTP wasn't secure. 
SMTP wasn't secure. TCPIP is not secure. I mean, we we developed tools around us to make our lives easier and to make businesses more efficient. And then 99% of the time looked at them and went, now, how do we add security? And in a lot of cases, added it pretty badly or didn't even add it at all and still aren't adding it. I spent a lot of my career first creating global MPLS networks and giving everyone access to everything because it was more efficient, like just make this network as big as I possibly can. And then obviously when MPLS kind of started to get replaced by SD-WAN, exactly the same concept. Let's just give everyone access to everything. Now, I didn't really know what zero trust was until two or three years ago, although I'd been trying to practice it from a strategy point of view way before that. I started to realize that insider threat and ransomware was growing and it could only grow because our attack surface was huge because we had these global flat networks that somebody gets in in one place anywhere in the globe and they will traverse your whole one easily and you don't even know. I mean, they're in and out and they've taken stuff. It's not like if someone breaks into your house, unless they just come in and take pictures of your stuff and, and your paperwork and leave, you'll know they're in. They'll be It'll be a trashed. People break into your business. They don't trash your environment, not until ransomware at least. They would come in, they would do their thing, they would take your data and they would leave. It's only when they started realizing they can charge you if they encrypt your data that you would even know they'd ever been there, right? So we've we've all... Anybody that's been in IT for a period of time has made the problem worse. So in my mind, zero trust is a complete change. It's almost like the other side of the coin. We need to start thinking about security first. We need to give users access just to the things that they need to do their job. And for me, starting with the fundamentals are critical because People join companies and leave companies all the time, and you'd never know they left. I mean, I can guarantee you can run through most people's active directories or equivalents, and there could be hundreds or thousands of people that are still there that haven't worked in the company for years. Um, and I could see you smiling. I mean, that's just the case, right? Um, what do you think people's approach should be to zero trust? How do If you were sitting down with a CISO or a CIO or the board, where do you start that journey? How do you kind of switch mindset completely? How, how do you explain the benefits of it and where they should start? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a very, very, again, uh, a long-winded answer. But I mean, in short, zero trust, like you're saying, what is it? To me, it's a framework. Like I look at it as a framework, right? It, it's, a, it's a set of controls that you put in your environment um, that essentially uh, creates a need to know slash access uh, to particular areas, assets, data, you know, be it uh, in your environment. Um, and the way I explain it is just like any other framework, right? Be it NIST, EIS, ISO, and uh, or regulatory uh, requirement um, is, you know, if you have just enough uh, to meet the acceptable security of your environment that doesn't impact your business, um, then it's acceptable. And a lot of people, security professionals, look at me and say, no, 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 lock everything down. And, you know, and uh, when I go into clients, oftentimes I ask the question, are you engaging us because you're trying to meet compliance or regulation or are you engaging us to truly meet security? 
And I can tell you when I talk to the high aboves, whether it's the board, the CIO, et cetera, it's mostly it's compliance and regulatory risk, especially in the U.S., whether it comes to, you know, a SOC 2 report, PCI, um, CCPA, whatever it is, um, that's what they're trying to do. And so we say, okay, fantastic. Now, do you care about your your brand, your you know your legal implications, which oftentimes cross uh, regulatory, um, and uh, you know just in general your brand? Um, yeah, of course we do. Okay, and do you have any? Uh, what about IP? Well, we don't have IP. Okay, fine. Um, and then we have a conversation of what we're trying to protect, um, and then what access to that data means. Um, when we can have kind of a fruitful conversation about what uh what revenue uh in the organization really means and if you're selling you know clothing uh what sometimes the board and the executives don't understand is that what's just as valuable as the e-com site is the marketing strategy um and how do we protect that and do you have the vp or chief marketing officer um still on a need-to-know basis um you know, because what I have, you know, I, I tell you a fantastic story of a cosmetic manufacturer and retailer um, where we essentially did a BIA and an asset, high value asset assessment. When we first went in there, they said, oh, yeah, our manufacturing plant and our recipes and our procedures and all that stuff. And to long story short, what ended up happening was is we said, well, your executives are traveling to uh, foreign countries uh, that most likely laptops are compromised. Um, your production is done in foreign countries where you don't have a lot of control around what uh, encrypted and what's not and uh, without saying the countries here. Um, so do you really care about protecting them? Because I'm fairly, fairly certain based upon what we know and the research that we've done is that your recipes are basically replicated across the board by other, by other you know, uh, brands. Um, you make a fair point. Um, what about your strategic uh, marketing decisions uh, with celebrities and uh, what value does that have? And of course, we had conversations with, with business, the business. And they, a light bulb moment went off and said, yeah, so if someone knew that we were going to sign a strategic you know, uh, agreement with the Kardashians, um, could they go in and scoop in behind us and make that strategic decision with, with them instead of us? And what impact does that have? Aha, now we're thinking. And so we quickly brought to light that it's not necessarily the product you're selling, but the data that's behind it, like the yeah. marketing data. And so now we have an aha moment found zero trust and securing that data, right? Um, whether it be on the host, the endpoint, or wherever that data lives. Um, and then we can easily explain, okay, who has access to that data? What can we lock down, whether it's identity or network-based? Um, and then we start having kind of the zero trust. But zero trust doesn't mean anything, right? It's, uh, they say, well, I want my, I want to have all the trust. Well, yeah, yeah. And then you have a conversation of like zero trust and really trust. And so I know that was kind of long winded, but we really have the conversation like pulling out from the executives and the board of like what, what the value of the data and organizations really mean. I, I think that's the, the most critical part. I think with anything that you're trying to do from a security point of view, you have to tie it back to business risk and business benefits. You, it can't be just about we want this technology. And and a lot of IT teams just want to buy the next shiny thing that's got pretty lights on it. And and they kind of go from project to project, going out and buying the the the, the kind of newest and most shiny toys. And 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 I get that. I mean, I, I've been in technology long enough that, that 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 I know I like new and shiny toys. But you need to tie it back. And and I think we go back to wanting to understand the business. We talked about that just now. We talked about it being critical when you first get into cyber or IT that 
you understand the business. It's always about the business. Businesses exist to make money and be a business. So if you can tie back any form of spend or any form of change to what the business strategy is and what their vision is and what they want to do and how they want to succeed, then I, then I think you're, you, you've, you've got a good chance of, of doing it. Um, but we have about 10 minutes left. So I'd like to ask you some kind of fun stuff. So I'm going to ask you about food. Um, firstly, I want to ask, what's been your best food experience? And it, it, it's not necessarily that the meal was amazing. It could be that it was at, I don't know, the top of Everest and you had a sandwich, but the view was good. So what's been your kind of best food experience? I think the one that I really like talking about is is uh, going to Nomas in Copenhagen, um, which is you know when the fir the first time I heard about it is the first year they had won restaurant you know world's best restaurant, um, and, and that was just the overall just fun experience um, and funny story sitting home at night and and watching it on on the news is like breaking kind of thing at nightly news and um, I was like that guy's from from Eastern Europe where my family is from. I started laughing like everyone's from there. I was like, no, I, I trust me. And then he went through a segment. He's like, that's where he's he's from Macedonia. I was like, I told you. Long story short, I shot him an email. I said, this is so cool and exciting, blah blah blah. And he replied like three weeks later. And and so we got to go and uh, he invited us. And and uh, we were living in the U.S. you know ten years ago or so, and we had and and we had dinner there. So that was really cool. That was probably a pretty memorable moment and we love to travel and anytime we travel it's always going to be like we're finding food in different countries or even states across the u.s okay so that's my next question then if you could go on like the dream vacation where would it be and have you already been there or is it like bucket list in the future oh dream vacation um i can't say i've already been there because then it wouldn't be a dream and dreams don't always come true but um <laughs> you know i i think a dream vacation would be just spending you know as long as possible just traveling to as many countries as possible i love people and culture and like you said food um it's not just sitting on a beach for you know for a week or a month or, or six months it's you know, I'm an extrovert. I love seeing cultures and people, like I said, and food. And so it'd just be, you know, I haven't done a lot of Asia. Um, yeah. and I probably want to go to tour the heck out of, you know, Southeast Asia and, and North Asia, you know, the Northern area and, uh, haven't been to Australia. So just kind of going and seeing people, food and culture. And honestly, uh, I know that, uh, this is a, a security conversation. Like the more we know about people and their behavior and the way they live, the better security professionals we are. Because at the end of the day, we are constantly talking to people about what we do, how we fix things, and why we're fixing things. And you have to know about people. And that's what I love doing. I, I think that's good. I mean, I, I love to travel as well. And I've had the benefit of being able to travel through work. And I traveled pretty much throughout Europe for, for 10 or so years when I first left university. And I went all over Europe. And then I had the opportunity in another job to, in the Formula One, I went to all the races. And then after that, I worked for a global manufacturer that had sites all over Asia and America, Canada, Mexico. And I've spent a lot of time. So if you if you do want to go to, to Asia, let me know, because it's one of my favorite places to go. The culture's significantly different than what we're used to, um, or at least what I'm used to. The people are great. The food's great. And and one of the stories I'd like to tell you is I, I, I was in Cambodia and I went to Angkor Wat. I've always wanted to go to Angkor Wat. It was on my bucket list. We were out in a tuk-tuk um, and we get a puncher. We've got a driver and we get a puncher. We stop on the side of the road in a little village. And obviously I didn't speak the language, but our driver did. 
we ended up being invited into a house for lunch whilst the people who owned the house went off with the tuk-tuk and, and managed to get a spare tire. They kind of lifted it up by hand, the people in the village, and replaced the tire whilst they were feeding us. And when we tried to pay them, all they wanted from us was a picture of us. We, they wouldn't take any money. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, that just, I mean, that's an amazing story. I mean, it's just, it's it, warming and I mean, just everything about it. And that's why I love, I love traveling because I mean, you just meet so many people and cultures and, you know, you always have, especially in the US, it's, you know, I, I hate to say we're, some of us are kind of closed minded. Um, we don't really travel outside of our, our little region slash state and, and then you go out and you have this perceived view of a different region or country or people. And then you go there and, and I can't tell you how many people I've talked to in the US, like, oh yeah, I went to Turkey, or I went to the Middle East, or I went to, you know, this country and the people are so friendly and so sweet. Their food's amazing. I'm like, yeah, what did you think before that? I just had a perceived view of what the media had to say about it. And, and uh, it's phenomenal. I think we've all got a perceived view based on what we see and read and hear. And it's not always, in fact, I'm going to go one further than that and say, that's never normally the case. It's very different. Yeah. Um, but one more question before we finish. If somebody was going to visit Sweden, what food should they try? And the reason I ask that is because I've been to Sweden and I don't really like fish and I've really struggled. So what would your advice be for, for somebody like me? Let's say you don't like fish. What other things can you try to eat in Sweden? Because I spent a lot of time in Stockholm. Oh, man, that's... This is this is a tough one because my, my wife and I have have just traveled so much and we've had the pleasure of of living in some really nice cities that had a, a nice variety of some great food, um and Sweden uh, doesn't have the variety and um we are, we have been spoiled, um I would say one of the places I'm going to quite often uh, now is a is I, I want to say it's the oldest or one of the oldest restaurants in Stockholm it's called Prinsen uh, and a signature Swedish dish is like a Kind of look at uh, think about like a steak fritz. Um, you know, I know it's just traditional; you can have it anywhere, but it's phenomenal. Um, the one other thing is uh, they call it skagen roda. It's it's like a shrimp mayo dill, and it's but it's fish, right? So um, I'm trying to think. A lot of fish here. Um, and I've had some good steaks. To be honest, I've had some good steaks in Sweden. I've had some really good Japanese food as well. Um, yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's it's tough to say. I mean, I. Um, I'm, we, we eat everything and I'm, I'm not a very like traditional Swedish, like we don't do traditional Swedish food. Um, so I would say go to, go to Prince and they have some really traditional Swedish stuff. It's like I said, the, I think the oldest or one of the oldest in all of Sweden, um, they've got some really good stuff, um, plug, plug to them, but, um, I don't know. I need to think about that one a little bit further and maybe send you a message afterwards. <laughs> well, ne next time I'm over in Stockholm, I'll drop you a note and we can go out and, and, and search ourselves. But I really want to thank you for coming on. Um, it's been great. I've had a great conversation. I know it took us a while to organize, um, but it, it has been great. And I'd love to get you back on again at some point. So thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure and, and really excited. Super, uh, super key on having the, you know, more zero trust and technology and, and conversations. I just love getting kind of into the weeds of that and it's fun. So looking forward to connecting with you again and, and in the future. Thank, thank, thank you, you very for much. Having me. Thank yeah. you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SEC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.